G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Well, we're back to creation versus evolution today, especially around what we've all come to know as natural selection. It's one of the foundations of the argument for biological evolution. Natural selection relates to the struggle for existence, survival and reproduction, and those organisms that best adapt to their environment produce more descendants. In a constant competition where only the fittest survive and the weak face extinction. But our special guest today is turning the concept of natural selection on its head. She's well qualified to argue that natural selection is not evolution, but is actually supported biblically and scientifically as a God-ordained process that allows organisms to survive. Former biology professor Dr. Georgia Purdom is a molecular geneticist, a science educator and author of the book called Galapagos Islands, A Different View. Her speciality is cellular and molecular biology. She is vice president of educational content and actively speaks and writes for Answers in Genesis. Dr. Purdom was a designer of the Natural Selection is Not Evolution exhibit at the Creation Museum that was founded by Australian creationist Ken Ham in the United States. And Dr. Georgia Purdom is joining us from the United States. Georgia, a special welcome along. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, Georgia, let's get a little geography here because the uh, the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum, uh, they are there in northern Kentucky, which is so close to the border of Ohio and the city of Cincinnati. And uh, when I asked you, uh, you know, where are you speaking to us from? You said Indiana. And that's also very much close there on the, the way that the states in the U.S. there hold together in your neck of the woods. Give us a little idea of, uh, you know, home for you is in Indiana. <laughs> yeah, so it's um, actually called the tri-state area. So uh, you can, uh, we have a, an interstate called 275. And so I take that from my home in Indiana over here to Kentucky but if I would drive north on it, I would be in Ohio. So I could actually pass through all three states and probably in a matter of about 15 minutes. Uh, do they have any time zone issues? Is there any daylight savings at times? They're all on the same, all on the same time zone? All on the same time zone, thank goodness. <laughs> what a relief. Hey, yeah. Georgia, with your expertise, when I say natural selection, so many listeners will be thinking back to their high school biology classes and the sorts of things that we learned as uh, foundations for evolution uh, as a way of looking at uh, humanity. When you look at that word natural selection, what does it say to you? 
Well, you're correct that it's often equivocated with evolution. They're kind of used, those terms are used synonymously. But when you really examine natural selection and what it does, you see that it's very different from evolution. Because one really good example of that is, you know, natural selection is something that we can observe in the present, whereas evolution is something that happens over eons of time and has really kind of happened in the past. It happens over long periods of unobservable time. And so right there tells you that they're two extremely um, different things. Uh, natural selection allows organisms to be able to um, sort of adapt and live better in the environments that they're in, whereas evolution requires a change from one kind of organism to another. And that's just a, what not what natural selection has the ability uh, to do. So they're two, they're two very, very different things. This confusion over Darwin's concept of natural selection, because uh, when we align that with uh, evolution, we're aligning this natural selection term with Charles Darwin too. You would have looked into this fairly substantially. How do you think of the confusion over what Darwin was saying was he just observing things that were happening naturally or was he using the natural selection argument to argue something that was far away from what we understand as Christian believers? Well, you know, when he visited the Galapagos Islands, um, you know, what he was observing in some ways was the result of natural selection. For example, he saw variations in the finches. They're called Darwin's finches now because he did study them, but um, he saw variations in maybe their size, especially their beak sizes. But overall, they're still finches, right? They're they're just different species of finches. Um, so what he did was he said, well, if those kinds of changes could occur over, you know, a period of time, maybe if you had enough of those changes over a long period of time, he kind of extrapolated to the past and said, you give it enough time and you have enough of these changes, then maybe one kind of organism, say, like um, a dinosaur could eventually evolve into something like a bird, right? So you get a totally different kind of organism. But again, that's the unobservable past. And what we see with natural selection is depending on, let's say, uh, what kinds of seeds are available on the islands, um, the bird populations can vary. So a certain uh, bird species might become more dominant finch species than another, but they're still finches, right? They're not finches becoming non-finches. Um, they're very much staying within that. And even if you got gave it a long period of time, right, millions of years, you're not going to get anything other than a finch because there's no way to add that genetic variation or their structures and functions that are needed to go from one kind of organism into another. Like, you're going to go from dinosaurs to birds, you're going to have to add a lot of stuff, and you're going to have to take a lot of stuff away, too. So um, we just don't see the ability within genetics to have a mechanism to add those things needed that natural selection can then select for or against. So you can't add the genetic information that will change the kind uh, or even the challenges within the species, uh, but you've got uh, the ways that those genetic uh, mutations can actually make those animals look different. Is this the way you explain you know, what's happening, just the fact that you just can't add genetic information? Right. So um, natural selection, it, it that and mutations are basically the main mechanisms for Darwinian evolution. They kind of worked hand in hand. And so genetic um, mutations supposedly 
add. Now they don't, but that's what evolutionists would say is that they're going to add and make the variations that are necessary for natural selection then to select for or against to change one kind of organism into another over eons of time. That That's what happens. But really when we observe what mutations do, they, um, they detract from, they take away from, they harm, they damage typically or maybe they don't make any significant change, um, sort of a neutral, quote-unquote neutral change. Um, but there isn't much of a change at all. There isn't much of a change at all or there's a dramatically um, harmful effect. You know, something on that on that scale, so to speak, but not nothing that's going to add the things that you need. So, for example, I keep using dinosaurs to birds because that's a very common example today. They'll say that dinosaurs over eons of time have evolved into birds. Birds are modern-day dinosaurs. But you don't have a genetic mechanism to add feathers or to even alter something that a dinosaur supposedly has, like a scale into a feather. They're fundamentally different structures that have fundamentally different underlying genetic information. You cannot change one into the other using mutations because they're either uh, harmful or maybe or don't have a whole lot of effect. So you just can't do it that way. Interesting to talk about dinosaurs and feathers. Uh, I recall seeing some dinosaur exhibits some time back, and I can't even remember where it was. But there seems to be something new that's developing where anytime you see a dinosaur exhibit, they all of a sudden have feathers. Is there something in that message or is there something that someone is trying to send a message that says there is a connection between birds and dinosaurs? A hundred percent, yeah, because that's that's what they believe it happened. So now what they're doing is a lot of times they're taking these supposedly little collagen-type structures that they find in the fossil record, maybe close to a dinosaur, and saying, oh, well, that's definitely a feather. That's a proto-feather, or that's an early feather before it became a real feather. Um, but a lot of times, you know, when they look at these things and really study them more in depth, what they're finding is they're probably just remnants of collagen and things that the animals, you know, have have that make up a lot of organisms, um, but maybe the way that they've deteriorated and then were fossilized um, make them just look a little frilly, but they're not feathers. They're not like flight feathers like we see on organisms, like we see on true birds, you know, today. Uh, so they're, they're very, very different things. And it's just in their imagination, supposedly, that these little frilly things or whatever they might be actually became a flight feather over millions of years now galapagos islands uh i don't know if you've had the opportunity to go there i mean darwin went there and uh, he wrote his book uh, galapagos islands and there's all sorts of things that have come out of uh, that particular study have you had the joy of actually visiting the galapagos islands Yes, I have. So back in 2011, um, I got to go there for a couple of weeks, and it truly was a trip of a lifetime. Uh, it was really neat to be able to see all these things that you've read about in books, um, especially associated with Darwin and his travels, and then to be able to see them in uh, person. And it is amazing as you go from island to island. That's my book, Galapagos Islands, A Different View, is really looking at it from 
that biblical creation, biblical worldview perspective and understanding that what you're seeing, you know, as you go from island to island, you might see different species of finches or different species of mockingbirds or iguanas, but they're all, but it's not one kind of organism becoming another. They're just well suited for the particular environment that that island might have. Um, and so they live and survive and thrive there, um, but they're not fundamentally changing um, or, you know, getting those changes that could lead them to becoming something else. Uh, they were finches and Darwin's day, they're finches in our day, and they were finches even thousands of years ago. And there's something special about the Galapagos Islands, isn't there? Um, If you're talking geography here again, uh, for listeners, they might have a map in their mind uh, just to the west of the north of the continent of South America, north of Ecuador. Uh, but the Galapagos, right. the Galapagos Islands, they are, they're very isolated. Was this what made mm-hmm. it special for Charles Darwin in his studies? Because it looked as though, because they're so isolated, you've got this ecosystem that he could make a more scientific um, assessment about. Was that what's special about the Galapagos Islands? Well, I think um, one of the things is that they're not really inhabited islands, so the animals are pretty easy to access on those islands. It's easy to get up close to them and study them, which is something kind of unique compared to most locations in the world. The other thing is, too, is he had studied um, organisms in Ecuador and other South American countries, and he could recognize that the animals that were on the island were similar yet different to those that were on the mainland. And so um, he, again, like he can see this speciation that's happening. He can see variation within these kinds. And so he just thought, well, if you give it enough time and you have enough of these changes, you could get a completely different organism, which is not something he observed. Again, that's just him using his imagination. He believed in millions of years. He had already kind of established that by reading Lyell's geology books that there were millions of years. And so and the fossil record is a is supposedly um, a remnant of what has occurred over all these millions of years. And so you go from very simple organisms, supposedly lower in the fossil record and the rock record. And as you go up, they supposedly get more complex. So out of that, he's kind of like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is what happened through natural selection. Um, he didn't know anything much about genetics at that time, but um, through natural selection that this could have occurred to get the organisms better suited for their environment. Um, but again, that's all based on, on an idea that he had about the past, not actually based on any evidence. Station sponsor. Helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Our very special guest is Dr. Georgia Purdom. She's a molecular geneticist, science educator and author of Galapagos Islands, A Different View. She's coming to Australia. She's going to be at a conference in Brisbane at the Mueller Performing Arts Centre in just under two months at the end of June. So June 30th through July 1st. Guess what? It's already sold out, a 1,500-seat auditorium, and it's already sold out two months in advance. Uh, There's some other places that you might be able to catch Dr. Georgia Purdom, though. We'll talk about those shortly. Uh, 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Georgia, this whole issue that people have with Genesis as being history, 
which is what we encourage Christians to aspire to understand uh, versus what we learned in high school, what we learned at university in science classes and under lecturers, that there is millions of years in the history. Uh, what are your thoughts on this conundrum that people have? Um, you know, which side do I, do I go on? Is it a leap of faith to say that Genesis is history? What are your thoughts when you get asked these sorts of questions? Well, it really comes down to a worldview issue and um, who knows the truth about the past, who has told us the truth about the past. And that affects how we interpret the evidence that we see and what we think about that. You know, Darwin came at it from a very atheistic uh, viewpoint and believing in millions of years and believing in what man had said about the past. And so he was trying to come up with ways that this could have worked through natural mechanisms because that was the worldview that he started with. But when we start with God's word and, you know, he knows the truth about the past. He is the creator. He has given us his inerrant and infallible word um, so that we can know that and we can understand that. And one of the things I love about being a creation scientist is that when I look at the world and I observe it and understand it, what I see confirms what God's word says. It doesn't go against it. Um, I, I think, you know, we ha- Christians have a reasoned faith. We do not have a blind one. I think it's really evolutionists that have a blind faith. Um, Um, in believing that all of these amazing things that we see around us, these complex organisms, can come about by random chance over eons of time. That takes a much bigger leap of faith than it does to believe what God has said in His Word about how He created and that He designed all these things. Interesting, isn't it, to talk about who has the blind faith because the evolutionist will say, of course, it's only evolution. There is no God. Uh, Evolution is the only answer. Therefore, we have to look to all of those uh, scientific methods of trying to confirm the millions of years. But you've got the Christian who says we don't have necessarily blind faith because what we do is we acknowledge God. But when it comes to an issue like natural selection, which uh, the evolutionist is blind faith about, we say, well, if we're going to be able to assess that, we need to be able to look at it and see how that works that actually confirms the biblical view. This is the sort of thing you work on. Right, exactly. And and that's what we see over and over again, whether we're studying bacteria, we're studying finches, um, and I've done a lot studying um, microbes, okay, the simple single, so-called simple single-celled organism, and their ability to adapt and survive in this world. And they do an amazing job of that. And God has designed them to be master adapters and be able to do that. Um, but that's very different from other types of organisms. We can't vary quite that much on the level that they can. But even then, even when you're talking bacteria that are designed to change and adapt, even they only do so within certain limits, you know, because they they can't just become something else. They're not on their way to becoming, you know, even E. coli, which is, you know, a, a, a a single-celled bacterial organism, the changes that occur in it don't lead it to becoming something other than bacteria. You know, it's still going to be within those. It's always going to be some type of E. coli um, or um, that area. It's not going to become um, some sort of some mankind. It's not going to become mankind over millions of years because those kind of changes just can't happen. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Michael in Austral in Sydney. Hi, Michael. Welcome. Hi, how are you both? Good, Michael. Need to be quick. What are your thoughts? Okay. Won't be long. Um, 
obviously with religion and science there's always going to be that argument but um people want to we do need science because the the amount of cures that they come up with is immaculate but i've always had the argument of they're trying to say that we there is a missing link and that we do evolve from apes but if that was the case why do we still have apes today why haven't they evolved uh, georgia your thoughts for michael sure and that, that's a very common question, actually, that I've uh, received. And so what we need to remember is that um, evolutionists believe that apes and humans share a common ancestor, but at some point in the past, they split off from that common ancestor. So this line became humans and this line became apes. And so that's why they would say we still have... Um, apes today because again there was a split that occurred in the past and so you get these two separate lines that are result in organisms that we have today and so um that's that's it's not a good argument to use you know so to speak because again that that's their understanding of what has happened um that's why we still have apes today that's why we still that's why we have humans today um so we just need to make sure that we're using the right kinds of arguments when we're talking against evolution michael was that a helpful response well i I think the the science side of it um uh clinging to straws with that sort of argument but no I think it's either one way or another because I'm I'm like a born again Christian and I'm still studying and learning but uh, that argument will never sit really well with me no I don't think we ever come from apes um, as far as that goes. Uh, no and I don't think Georgia is saying we come from apes No I'm not saying that <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely did not come from apes. I was just saying that sometimes people say, well, if we evolved, then why are there still apes today? I thought that's what you were talking about. And so, um, but they would say again that we just had a common ancestor in the past and now we're two separate, um, we've split off from that six million or seven million years ago. And so now we have these two separate creatures today, apes and humans. That's what an evolutionist would say. I completely agree we didn't come from any kind of ape-like creature because God created animals according to their kind, which would have included the ape kind. And then he created um, mankind, humankind, Adam and Eve as the very last thing that he created. Before we take another call, Georgia, let me just come back to your thoughts on species since Noah's flood, because the creation, the you know, the Genesis is history understanding of God's creation uh, also has this huge event, Noah's flood. And so the evidence that has come from the way that species have changed in that time. Any thoughts here of the importance of being able to identify a Noah's flood and and what that actually leads us to by understanding evidence? Yeah, I think one of the things, I mean, understanding that, I mean, that event only occurred about 4,000 years ago. And so it is really amazing to see um, the amount of variation and speciation that has come um, as a result of that event. And in some species, more than others, you know, dogs, we, we know there's at least 35 um, species of dogs with about three to 400 different types of domestic dog breeds. And so God has given a lot of, obviously, genetic variation um, available in the dog kind. Whereas with other animals like bears, for example, we only have eight species. And those have just arisen, you know, since the time of 
the flood. And so they haven't speciated quite as much. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, according to evolution, um, they would say speciation takes really, really long periods of time. It takes millions of years. And it really doesn't. I mean, we obviously have observed this speciation occurring. I mean, this is something that's happened over the last 4,000 years. Um, we know that from starting with God's word, but also just even when we observe speciation in the present, we see that there are mechanisms in place that actually can um, cause that to occur uh, quite quickly. It doesn't take millions of years. And over and over again, I read papers where, you know, the scientists involved in the studies will just be like, uh, you know, this is happening right before our eyes. And um, we can't believe that because, again, they've been so indoctrinated in the idea that this speciation takes really, really long periods of time when, in fact, um, it can actually occur quickly under the right conditions. And and obviously, after the flood, you would have had a very different world from the one that you had before the flood. You've got lots of different environments. You've got organisms. You've got an ice age. You've got organisms, you know, moving out from where um, the flood, where the ark landed. And so there was probably um, some some quick speciation in being able to adapt and change and um, live in those new environments. But again, there's still um, there's still some of that that we can see today with like, for example, artificial selection and dog breeding. And we see um, people being able to select for or against certain traits and, and have those different dog breeds. And so it really is amazing. I think the variety that God has created in his organisms um, to allow us to be able to um, enjoy that and see the diversity of that. Well, when we've got 35 species and hundreds of breeds of dogs, uh, but you say you compare then uh, bears, and there's only eight species of bears. And I know you're arguing that this has happened since the floods, Noah's floods, uh, about 4,000 years ago. That's the evidence we have today. Uh, What would be the case if there were millions of years? I mean, if you had that speciation happening at the same pace as you've seen these recent years, what would things look like if there were millions of years? Well, a lot of a lot more species probably dead and in the fossil record. Okay. Um, you should see a lot because there would be, I mean, if it would happen at the rate it's happening, you know, or even has happened after the flood, which is probably quicker even than what we observe today because our environments are more stable and, and not having as much change. But if it would happen over the long periods of time that evolution predicts, the, I mean, it would just take forever to even get one new species. I mean, and so... I, I, it's just not plausible um, to even think about that. I mean, you wouldn't even see new species over, over, I mean, I don't know how many generations of people, right? You wouldn't even see any changes. Um, And so, uh, so it would, so that's just kind of hard to believe and understand because you think over millions of years, there's supposedly ice ages, there's catastrophes, there's other things that are happening. You would think there would be, you know, more of these speciation events occurring and to allow organisms to survive. But it's just not, um, again, it, it doesn't work with what they what they have in place for evolution. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Gary in Sydney. Hi, Gary, welcome. Hello, yes, uh, just first like to say I'm a big fan of the uh, program you have on YouTube. Um, yeah, I, I just I was listening what not long ago to a program on Answers in Genesis TV where they were talking about the Nazis and eugenics and um, how that sort of um, 
discrimination has had formed between blacks and whites. And um, I was just wondering, with that argument where they uh, say that uh, black people were the lesser uh, race, and I just wonder if that's a, a relevant argument to sort of still continue with, to say that that sort of uh, affects the way that people think today. Like, because we see between Aboriginal people and, like, say, for instance, sports people, where they get criticised, saying eight men and things like that. And I'm just wondering if that's the the, the ideas of from Darwinism with descent of man and um, uh, is that a still a good argument to have? With Gary, today? So there's a lot, there's a lot in your question here and it comes down to, I think, uh, issues around race or races uh, of course we'll always say that god created one race the human race but there are differences in there georgia what are your thoughts for gary as uh, as he's contemplating these challenging uh, ideas yeah so this is an area eugenics is an area i've done quite a bit of research in and um, just looking at the history of it and even how it's being carried out today and evolutionary ideas are absolutely the foundation for eugenics which just means well-born or good in birth and the idea that um, certain humans were less evolved than other humans just because of the the shade of their skin or because of the shape of their eyes or whatever it might be Um, and that um, it if you know the history of it, it's really interesting because Charles Darwin's cousin was Francis Galton and Francis Galton is considered the father of eugenics. And so they're, they really, um, they communicated with each other a lot and their ideas really played off of each other a lot. Um, because they believe that this could lead to, you know, if we enacted eugenics, which in their case was, you know, only certain people marry, only certain people reproduce, you know, those kinds of ideas, you could lead to better and better people. Um, and you need to keep the race pure and you know all of these ideas really came out of that evolutionary thinking that's the foundation for that and it's terrible ideas terrible things that have led to uh, persecution and racism and those kinds of ideas that have absolutely no basis in scripture because as you said we're all one race a human race now we have different people groups or different ethnicities they came as a result of the tower of babel event but it's not but we're still all one race Gary, I hope that was a good uh, response to your question. Uh, 1-800-316-316. Let's take some more calls, shall we? Richard is in Alstonville in New South Wales. Hi, Richard. Welcome. Uh, G'day, guys. Um, I have a question. I'm not sure exactly how it fits in with the um, natural selection and all that when it comes to evolution. But um, based on time and evolution and how long they say human beings have been here and and the beginning of time till the end of time and i've heard um christian like i think it's eschatology and um christian historians put the point at somewhere between um six thousand two hundred and fifty years to six six thousand two hundred and six years but evolutionists will say it's somewhere around about is it six billion or something, and then humans have only been here for a period of six, six to sixty million. I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, yeah, all those yeah. times, Georgia. Um, you know, you've probably got the arguments of uh, the uh, those who will want to argue with you down pat. Uh, those sorts of numbers, uh, they're mind-boggling numbers when you get onto the evolutionary side. What are your thoughts here for Richard? 
Yeah, so evolutionists would believe that the Earth itself is about 4.5 billion years old and that humans only occurred, yet humans broke off from a common ancestor with the apes about 6 million years ago. Um, modern humans have only been around for maybe a few hundred thousand years, so we're relatively late on the scene, shall we say, in an evolutionary view. Um, but again, all of that depends on your worldview and your starting point for knowing the truth about the past because evolutionists would believe that that, you know, radiometric dating methods give us millions and billions of years, so that must be how old the Earth is. But again, radiometric dating methods are all based on assumptions about the past, and they may or may not be correct. And so if they're wrong, it's going to give you a date that's wrong, uh, which is going to be very problematic. And we know from Scripture itself that if you add up the genealogies and the dates there um, in Genesis chapter 5 and 11, as well as other places, that you only get about, you get about 2,000 years between Adam and Abraham, 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ, and 2,000 years between Christ and today. So that only gives you 6,000 years. So again, it depends on your starting point and knowing for what you what you believe about the truth about the past. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. You might have a question. Let's take another call. Philip is in Albany in WA. Hello, Philip. Welcome along. Uh, good morning. Um, when Jesus was entering uh, Jerusalem, um, he said, indeed, keep quiet, the rocks will cry out. Well, I, I believe that the rocks are crying out, telling us exactly what has happened um, in the history of the world. Um, for example, Mars has been proven to be still volcanic. Um, now, the law of thermodynamics says that if something is billions of years old, it would be stone cold and dead, and yet it's still erupting. Now, here on planet Earth, we've got the uh, the Pilbara jellyfish fossil. Now, that was found by Christian geologist Bill Wirtz, um, and he uh, ended up in a, a major national debate with the, uh, the evolutionists over it. Now, <laughs> that the shapes in the Pilbara ironstone uh, were not allowed to be jellyfish because they were one billion years out of the imagined order of of uh, when the rock was uh, laid down and when jellyfish were supposed to have evolved. But these jellyfish had iron pyrites on the gut. Now, every biologist, geologist knows that when a, a creature dies in seawater and there's iron particles present, the phosphorus from the gut interacts with the iron particles and forms iron pyrites. So there is undeniable, absolute proof that... Uh, the, and these jellyfish are still ex extant. They still exist. Zero evolution. One billion years missing from the imagined age of planet Earth and uh, also of uh, the solar system. Uh, Philip, I'm hoping that Georgia could hear uh, everything you were saying there. There's a few little breakups along the way. But Georgia, did you catch the uh, the essence of what Philip was saying? Yeah, it's just the idea. I mean, I think I'm pretty, I mean, I'm not a geologist, but um, a lot of what he's talking about there are things like out of place fossils. You know, when you find things in the fossil record, you know, which aren't supposed to be there at that point because they haven't evolved yet, um, according to evolutionary timeframes. And when you find those, um, and there's lots of examples of those, and it is very challenging for evolutionists to try to explain that. Um, and, and so, 
again, I agree in some ways that rocks do cry out um, in that sense that um, they are they are young, they're not old and um, and it helps us understand and again, that's absolutely consistent with a biblical worldview and the biblical account of creation in Genesis. Uh, Philip, how was that for a response? Oh, fantastic, thank you. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation with our special guest. We're talking about natural selection uh, into our conversation too. The age of the earth, a, a 4,000 year ago flood. We call it Noah's flood. And then uh, bringing into that how you understand where people come up with ideas about millions or billions of years. Uh, let me just stay with this inconsistencies in dating for a few moments because something that uh, that Philip brought out there was that uh, that you know you've got these uh, he's talking about jellyfish found in fossils uh, and those jellyfish are no different to the jellyfish today so while you're talking about the speciation and the ways that uh, that species do change um, there's some that don't perhaps any thoughts here on the jellyfish yeah I mean Maybe not about jellyfish specifically, but it is it is very challenging for evolutionists when what you see a lot in the fossil record is actually stasis. In other words, things staying the same, not things really changing. I mean, how is it possible that, you know, you're finding, um, you know, for example, dogs that were, you know, a million years old or whatever they might be, and they look, they're relatively the same today. You know, you're seeing the sameness because um, it, you see this even with microbes. It's amazing, you know. Um, that they have a lot of the same attributes today that they did supposedly quote unquote millions you know millions of years ago. Well, it's because they they aren't millions of years old and they haven't fundamentally changed over time. And that's what we would expect in the shorter time frame, the biblical time frame, and just I, again God creating organisms according to their kinds. And while we have variation within those kinds, we don't have them becoming something other than that kind. So the biblical Christian who's looking at the Bible in their left hand and they're looking at a science textbook in the other uh, and they're thinking about a younger earth and they're thinking about uh, you know the evolutionary idea of an older earth, uh, thinking you can observe things happening but it actually doesn't change the kinds of animals over time. Uh, this often gets complicated when you talk about kinds and species and breeds and those sorts of things. But kinds, uh, this is obviously sometimes you've got to just get to grips with that if you're going to understand your sorts of argument, I imagine. But you can observe it happening, but it doesn't change kinds over time because natural selection doesn't have the power to do that. How do you explain that? Right. So kind usually falls, you know, if we think about this in modern taxonomic terms, uh, uh, kind usually occurs at the family level. So, you know, when we think of kingdom, phylum, class, order, and then we come to family, um, and then genus and species is below that. So, for example, the dog family, that's Canidae. Um, so all of those, it's pretty easy to recognize that all of those are dogs, but we have very different genus and different species within that. Same is true of cats, feel a day, you know, you can have a lot of variation, but they're all cats. I mean, we all can see that and understand that. So we have variation within that usually, but we don't have a one type of family like a cat becoming a dog or something like that. We don't have that type of change because we don't have the genetic mechanisms to make that possible. Uh, let's squeeze in one more call. Time's running short. Mike is in Tasmania. Hi, Mike. Welcome along. Hi, um, thanks for 
Uh, look, um, I heard uh, that um, some dinosaurs' bones have been found with, like, blood cells still in them, so, you know, they're not that old. Georgia? Yeah, absolutely. I've looked into that um, a lot too. That's sort of a favorite fossil find of mine. So we do find soft tissue in dinosaur bones and they sh- it shouldn't be there if they're millions of years old because organic molecules like proteins and cells, they can't last that long. Um, and I've worked in a lab with all of those things, you know, not necessarily dinosaur red blood cells, but, you know, proteins and cells and, and things like that. And it's hard to get them to last <laughs> even for short periods of time, much less for millions of years. And so it's just another evidence that is consistent with the Bible. We would expect to find things like that if those fossils have been buried quickly and deeply. Um, and that is exactly what we find. Um, and so, yeah, we would expect that within the thousands of years time frame, but not millions of years. Mike in Tasmania, thank you so much for your call. Hey, time now running short. And I mentioned a little earlier, you're coming to Australia, Georgia. And uh, one of the events yeah. that you're going to be speaking at is already sold out in a 1,500-seat auditorium at the... Uh, Mueller Performing Arts Centre in Brisbane, already sold out. That one is happening on the 30th of June and 1st of July. You're also speaking at some other events, uh, a women's conference in Sydney on July 7th and 8th. And uh, I'm going to encourage listeners to check in with the Answers in Genesis website uh, to get details of where you can see Georgia speaking at that women's conference in Sydney. The conference she's coming to speak at in Brisbane, uh, she's also on the same podium with Ken Ham, the founder of Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. Also, Martin Isles is one of the speakers at that event and uh, joining them on the podium, Dr. Georgia Purdom, molecular geneticist. Uh, Just quickly on the Creation Museum, the Ark Encounter, you've got this really wonderful relationship and connection there. You've designed some of their educational programs. How's things going with those, uh, Georgia? Are you getting, you get groups coming through from all over the US, in fact, all over the world? Definitely. It's amazing to see um, how many buses are coming in every day, tour buses. I think tomorrow we have like 13 buses. Well, be your day, but uh, we have about 13 buses coming in. And it's amazing to um, see that. I think last week we had one day that had 18 buses coming. And that's just here at the museum. Um, at the Ark, they have at least that many or more. Uh, so it really is neat to see, you know, people ask me, when is your busy time? And I'm like, well, it's always busy. It's just a matter of busy or very busy. And so um, it, it's it's neat to see in our educational programs, we have camps for kids in the summer and they're selling out and we have labs and just all kinds of great um, educational programs that we offer even to guests. And a lot of times they are they're packed uh, and we have to turn people away. So it really is a a neat thing to be able to see. And we're trying to expand to be able to keep up with that capacity. Well, there's something for a bucket list for listeners who want to visit the United States uh, to drop in and see either of or all of those particular, I'll call them attractions, uh, but they're just amazing. Uh, The Answers in Genesis Creation Museum, the Ark Encounter, And uh, for people to connect there and even find out uh, where is that on the map again? We mentioned uh, on the uh, tri-state borders there of Kentucky in the south, Ohio in the north and Indiana in the east of that, I think, is it? 
West. Okay. West. Yeah. So mm-hmm. answersingenesis.org. Answersingenesis.org. And there's also provision there for you to be able to ask all sorts of questions about the uh, concerns that you might have, the things that have shaped your understanding of the creation and evolution debate, and to be able to get a creationist perspective. Answersingenesis.org. And uh, Georgia Purdom, thank you so much uh, for it's just an it's just a privilege for us to have you on, and uh, hopefully we'll get you face to face in our studio when you're here in Australia. But uh, wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you for sharing your heart with us today on 2020. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in person. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.